Welcome up ATL to the weekend in December 22, 2016, the holiday edition. In this episode, Jay Rosen and I discuss the Odebrecht and Blaston FCPA enforcement action and also their implications in the global anti-corruption front as a global anti-corruption enforcement settlement action. We take a look at the Teva Pharmaceuticals FCPA enforcement action. All of these enforcement actions were announced, of course, this week. We look at the Goldman Sachs issues uh, about being further ensnared in the 1MDB scandal. We take a look at the possible involvement of the uh, president of Goldman uh, in this uh, transactions uh, that Goldman did for 1MDB and its implications for due diligence on customers going forward. We talk about the Cowboys winning the NFC East and their number one seed and the NFC. Uh, Jay gives us uh, a bit of a roundup on uh, the Patriots, and I conclude with the Texans and their playoff hopes. The episode comes in at uh, just over 35 minutes. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you very much for listening to This Week in FCPA and wish you a very Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and Happy Holidays. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist. I'd like to welcome you to Episode 33 of This Week in FCPA, the Holiday Edition. As always, I'm joined by joined by and enjoy podcasting with Mr. Translations himself, Jay Rosen. Jay, welcome on this December 23rd. Thanks, Tom. It's uh, great to uh, celebrate this holiday edition of This Week in FCPA with you. And uh, we've got lots of great year-end settlements to talk about. Well, Jay, I think it's only appropriate that uh, on the same week of the intersection of Christmas and Hanukkah, we have the intersection of two of the four or five largest FCPA fines in the history of the world ever, and indeed the largest anti-corruption global settlement in the history of the world ever. So uh, obviously I'm speaking about Odebrecht slash Brascom, and then um, actually as a larger component of an FCPA fine, we have Teva Pharmaceuticals. So, uh, what uh, what are some of the numbers tell us on uh, Odebrecht Brascom? Uh, well, we say uh, this is where I need some clarification, but I guess there's a minimum five of two point fine of two point six billion, and it can go all the way up to four billion, and that is dependent upon the. Uh, I guess, financial strength of Odebrecht. So they're going to make a determination at some point exactly uh, where those numbers fall. Uh, the other thing that's interesting is is uh, it's a joint resolution uh, between Brazil, Switzerland, and the United States. And I believe the United States will get 15% of the awards. So this is very uh, interesting to see that uh, a bulk of the awards will be going back into Brazil. And I read something today in the Wall Street Journal that um, uh, Petrobras is already making a claim to want to get made whole for uh, some of the bribery that happened to it based on uh, Odebrecht and Braskem. Uh, the other numbers are is that uh, about a $788 million were paid out as part of the scheme, and that was paid out by Odebrecht. 
uh, Odebrecht, the nexus of it was that they had employees in Miami, Florida who participated in it. And the way um, Braskem gets uh, roped into this is they had ADRs trading here uh, on US exchanges. So those are the, um, you know, the, the top numbers that I look at. Uh, Tom, do you have any insight into how they figure out that range? So uh, I think um, on the Odebrecht total number, it's uh, about um, a little over 400 million paid to the U.S., um, somewhere in that range. And I think that brings us at, uh, when it was announced, it was uh, number four on the top 10 list of FCPA settlements, but that was Wednesday. On Thursday, Teva came in with five point, uh, excuse me, 519 million uh, bumping it. So uh, we have Teva at number four and we have Odebrecht at number five as of today. Of course, it could change next week. But on the numbers, yeah. So, um, Frankly, it was stunning to read the uh, the uh, criminal information, which laid out the uh, sentencing guidelines uh, range, uh, because it was high as um, six billion, uh, based upon the conduct of Odebrecht. Uh, we can only say the conduct was truly worldwide in scope, uh, both institutionalized at the uh, functional business unit level. There was essentially a bribery department, but also personally uh, run by the company's CEO, who's now been sentenced to 19 years in jail uh, in Brazil. So we had uh, really a Siemens-level uh, bribery scheme for multiple years, and I think that when you have the senior-level involvement, you have an established institutionalized bribery scheme, You have uh, that's when you're going to have your highest fine and penalty. So the range was as high as $6 billion, but the company did receive, um, I believe, 20% credit uh, based upon not self-disclosure, but their cooperation uh, with the United States government and their remediation. Interestingly, on the remediation, even though they received credit for that, they did not, uh, They or they are required to have a monitor, which communicates, I think, that the Department of Justice is either not satisfied with the rate of remediation or the quality of the remediation or is concerned about the company fulfilling their obligations under the deferred prosecution going forward. So they do have a uh, monitorship as well. But on the, uh, uh, clearly the, uh, Odebrecht received a, a, a considerable settlement, but within the range you discussed, Jay, I have it between 4.5 billion down to 2.6 billion. And the uh, Odebrecht claims an inability to pay more than the $2.6 billion. Uh, so there's going to be some additional information presented to the United States government, and a decision will be made by the end of March 2017. So the end of Q1, the company will know uh, what its final uh, fine and penalty will be. Uh, this is really not something we've seen before. We have seen companies receive sub substantive discounts when uh, they did not have the ability to pay. What we have not seen is that be part of a open-ended or unended obligation, uh, non-final obligation, I should say. Um, that may be because this current administration wanted to close it out. It may be because Odebrecht wanted to close it out under uh, the current administration. There could be a whole host of reasons. You know, perhaps they wanted the year in tax uh, for tax reporting purposes. Nevertheless, 
very interesting to see that range. Also, a, a lengthy payout uh, by Odebrecht. So we have seen uh, annual or multiple payouts, large fines and penalties. Um, I think that is a, a concession by all of the governments involved that they had no interest in putting this company out of business. So that's, um, I think, a very welcome uh, development to not only have governments recognize it's really not in their interest to put companies out of business, but also for companies to uh, give some greater incentive to, to come forward and, if not self-disclose, certainly cooperate. Uh, the breadth and scope of the bribery scheme was really stunning, Jay. Uh, if you read about it, it was uh, across the globe, the um, multiple countries involved. Uh, I, I got 11 countries, so it uh, went all the way from Angola, Argentina, Colombia, Dominican Republic, Ecuador, Guatemala, Mexico, uh, Panama, Peru, and not to be left out, certainly not last, but definitely, no, certainly, but not least, but definitely last, Venezuela. So that's uh, not necessarily all the usual suspects. There's some, um, you know, there's a, a big concentration there in Latin America, and uh, I guess the only usual suspects we see missing there are Russia, but we'll get to them when we talk about Tava. Right. And so the, uh, they, the company even bought a bank in Antigua so that they could funnel the bribes through without having to worry about such messy things as uh, money laundering uh, requirements and obligations. Uh, but it's, I think, um, a concession by the government that uh, they need uh, the uh, regions, and when I say region, the America's region's largest Latin American construction company to continue as an ongoing concern. They need that construction company expertise. The company needs to exist for the Brazilian uh, economy, and uh, people uh, who are doing construction work shouldn't lose their jobs simply because they have corrupt management. So uh, really interesting that uh, multiple reasons for the structure of the settlement. And you really noted uh, or highlighted, Jay, one of the other key components, which is the the split of the pie. Um, so we had the United States, we had Brazil, and we had Switzerland. And we have not seen Switzerland as a part of FCPA settlements before. Um, this might be a very interesting signal that Switzerland is going to provide more cooperation uh, for enforcement agencies on the money laundering uh, angle of things going forward. And that certainly is going to uh, make life difficult for uh, corrupt uh, persons, individuals, companies and entities if the Swiss are going to start cooperating at a level where uh, they have apparently cooperated in the Odebrecht case and uh, to the point where they were receiving part of the fine and penalty. The other thing, Jay, is it brings home to me is what Dan Kahn and Carol Brockmeyer talked about at the ACI National FCPA Conference in early December in uh, Washington, which is the, what they call the one pie theory, that you have one pie of fines and penalties and that uh, it needs to be equi equitably split up. And really, it's the United States, I think, that's going to take the lead in suggesting that split, because as the uh, world's leading enforcer of bribery and corruption laws, the U.S., I think only the, the Department of Justice and SEC has the credibility, cachet, and really expertise to, to lead this type of effort. Um, 
if you tie that into the relative short length of time it took for this settlement to be arrived at, um, certainly in the FCPA context, I think it was 18 months or so, although the investigation had been going on much longer in Brazil, so that the Department of Justice would have had a, a large amount of information to collect from their Brazilian counterparts, their prosecutorial counterparts. Nevertheless, Odebrecht, I think, uh, by running basically to the U.S., acknowledged that only the U.S. could put together a global settlement. So that's significant for compliance going forward. Uh, in terms of the new administration, it really doesn't matter what the administration's view on anti-bribery, anti-corruption, compliance enforcement is. If companies recognize that the U.S. Department of Justice is going to be key to having a global settlement, they're still going to self-disclose, cooperate, and uh, move towards the uh, types of conduct the government wants to see, which leads to a discount. And uh, that may be the lasting legacy of uh, Odebrecht. So a, a couple of questions I have for you. One of them is, um, can you go back a, a little bit historically and, and talk about um, Anderson and, and Enron and why uh, you know Odebrecht is structured in such a way to keep the company going? So um, that would be number one, and then I got another one to come back to you for. Sure. Um, many commentators, many lawyers, many government regulators recall the story of Arthur Anderson, who went to trial against the government uh, related to document destruction out of the Enron scandal and sustained a guilty verdict, and the company uh, dissolved. Now, at the end of the day, the guilty verdict was overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court, but that was some two or three years after the firm had ceased to exist. And I've talked to prosecutors who said they have no interest in putting companies out of business. Uh, they recognize that the subject matter expertise is not something you want to lose. You don't want to throw people out on the street simply because uh, someone made a mistake or they have a corrupt management. And so that may be one of the reasons that deferred prosecution agreements were developed uh, to help uh, ameliorate that. And the Odebrecht uh, resolution really points towards that exact reason, and it points towards the usefulness of the tool of a deferred prosecution agreement to punish a culpable and guilty entity while not penalizing uh, the company so severely that it has to go out of business. Um, so it was um, like a very strategic use of the deferred prosecution agreement, and particularly so given that it was not a U.S.-based company. Typically, the Department of Justice has less concern about putting a foreign company out of business than they would about a U.S. company, obviously because uh, those folks don't vote in U.S. elections. So uh, I thought it was a very useful and powerful example of what a DPA can, can bring to a prosecutor's uh, quiver of arrows to use going forward. And indeed, if you flip it around, Odebrecht recognized that as well by going to the Department of Justice. Um, the other thing you raised, Jay, was Petrobras. And Petrobras may uh, have a claim back against Odebrecht. That is not part of the one pie. If Petrobras uh, lost money, if they received... Um, uh, less quality services, they have a direct claim against Odebrecht. And whatever Odebrecht's settlement is with the U.S. Department of Justice, that's probably not going to cover Petrobras. 
Now, the Brazilian government might work something out with uh, Petrobras, as they're the owners of Petrobras. It's a state-owned enterprise. But um, that could be the, the um, subject of a separate civil action. So we'll just have to see how that plays out. So thank you for uh, going through that. Um, one other question now. So I, I know Electrobras is still out there. Do you know of any other Brazilian entities that there would be either um, a tax benefit for them wrapping up in the next few days, or do you think some of those other parts are going to continue on into the new year and the new administration? Well, it's um, given the size of these settlements and the scopes of uh, what happened under these enforcement actions, it certainly wouldn't surprise me to see something come out uh, next week. I think you were at a conference last week or two weeks ago where uh, there was information indicated that a major settlement was coming uh, out of a Southern California-based company. Uh, who knows which company that could be? Um, there are a large number of FCPA investigations into companies who did business with Petrobras, into companies who did business with Odebrecht, into companies who did business around the 2014 uh, World Cup, around companies who did business relating to the 2016 Olympics. There are simply a ton and a half of uh, investigations right now, and whether those resolve themselves next week or not, um, uh, probably at this point is, is difficult to hazard a guess. But I would say that there are multiple investigations uh, ongoing. And let me just say one more time that if you are a U.S. company and you have done business with Petrobras, you have done business with Brascom, you have done business with Odebrecht, you've done business with the Brazilian government, you help create or build uh, any facilities for the 2014 World Cup. You help build any facilities for the 2016 um, Olympics or engaged in uh, infrastructure construction. You need to investigate everything about those business transactions for yourself now because this is going to cascade down for years and the government's going to come knocking at some point and you had better be ready. Good advice. Uh, but I think uh, that gives us the, the springboard now uh, to do TAVA. And uh, my number I have on that is uh, 519 million. And you said that puts them at number four on the top 10 list. Uh, basically, uh, their uh, major uh, locus of uh, corruptions were in Ukraine, Mexico, and Russia. And uh, not surprising to see a pharmaceutical company involved in uh, an action like this. Um, any uh, initial thoughts on uh, the resolution or uh, for the amount? Well, um, the amount included a uh, profit disgorgement of $236 million, which is the second largest profit disgorgement ever. Uh, Teva is a uh, is Israel-based company. I think this is the first FCPA action for an Israel-based company. Uh, typically in the pharma space, Jay, we have not seen anything close to fines and penalties at this amount. I think Johnson & Johnson was the largest um, prior, although I may have that wrong. Uh, and if it was Jay, Jay, I think that was a $71 million. So a, a, a huge um, increase over a prior uh, pharmaceutical companies. 
We have not seen uh, this level of corruption in a pharmaceutical company resolution in quite some time. I think, once again, uh, here we had not the systemic, intentional bribery and corruption that we saw with Odebrecht, but we had executives um, overseeing compliance who were unable or unwilling to enforce the company's uh, anti-corruption compliance program. So um, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that might play out. We should note uh, also that uh, at least uh, under U.S. law, there's been no individual prosecutions of either employees at Odebrecht, employees at Brascom, or Teva to date. Although at Odebrecht, the uh, aforementioned former CEO has been sentenced to 19 years in jail for violation of the Brazilian law. But um, back to Teva, um, interestingly, they also are going to be required to have a monitor, uh, as did Odebrecht. So uh, whereas it did appear that the monitor ships were lessening or uh, ta tapering off somewhat, uh, it may be uh, the opposite now for some of these very large global settlements. And, uh, you know, I, I think um, conceptually it makes sense, it, you know, just because with the, the, the scope of the schemes, uh, I, I think that, you know, it's, uh, it's good fences and good neighbors that you just can't let them pay a fine and go on. So, um, you know, there is probably a very good reason to have a monitor there to help uh, reculcate or inculcate and reestablish, uh, um, you know, a, 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 a culture of compliance, which both, which all three of these situations seem to uh, sorely lack. So, uh, quite a holiday week in uh, FCPA enforcement, Jay. But wait, there's still more. How about 1MDB in Goldman and... Uh, we uh, there's a Wall Street Journal article a couple days ago, uh, and doing a real deep dive as uh, the journalist notes do, uh, trying to look at uh, where a lot of this uh, wealth has gone from out of 1MDB, and uh, it focused on uh, one uh, Goldman uh, uh, chief who was head of the Southeast Asia branch, branch guy named Tim Leisner, I think you say his name. And uh, when you look at the amount of uh, bonds that uh, Goldman sold on behalf of 1MDB to uh, satisfy their capital requirements, uh, they took a real big uh, percentage of those sales and they booked it as profit. And uh, at one point, some of the Goldman execs said, you know, the bond sold so easily why are you taking such a you know huge slice of this? We should be only taking a million or two, and they were taking a huge amount of those bonds. And I, I find this of interest. I'd like your opinion now that in the incoming uh, Trump cabinet, we have three former members of um, Goldman Sachs uh, if they get approved, and one of them doesn't need to get approved. So uh, Steve Bannon, the uh, uh, special counselor to the president is there, there, Steve Mnuchin, and the other person that they're looking at naming is the former president of Goldman Sachs, uh, Gary Cohn. So uh, your thoughts on that? So there's a couple of different things going on here from my perspective, Jay. Uh, the first one in uh, is 
in an article today in the New York Times, it reported that uh, Gary Cohn, the uh, uh, president-elect's top, top economic advisor and director of the National Economic Council, uh, was involved in the tracking and approving of transactions by Goldman with one MDB. And that's uh, certainly interesting that you would have the, the head of Goldman himself actually involved down to that uh, that detail level. And it speaks to the importance of this client to Goldman and the numbers that uh, were bandied about, I think, uh, $3 billion in bond offerings, with uh, 300 to 600 million in profit to Goldman, so a a, uh, a huge client for the firm, perhaps the the largest client over a multi-year period. So we have uh, very high level involvement in this case. But here's the uh, the other thing, which, as salacious as it may be, that the uh, incoming head of the National Economic Council may have been involved in this is the following, Jay. What's the role of an advisor or what's the role of um, you to look at somebody who's your customer? Because at the end of the day, 1MDB was the customer slash client of Goldman. So should Goldman have been looking at questions like, where was this money going? Should Goldman have been looking at questions like you raised? Is this too easy? Is our fee too high? Uh that's a level of scrutiny, at least in terms of illegal behavior, that we may not have seen before. Now, we do have one FCPA criminal conviction for conscious indifference, um, but um, that's the Frederick Burke case. But um, what's the what's the responsibility of a financial advisor? What's the responsibility of a law firm? What's the responsibility of a translation company? for that matter, uh, to look at the activities of their client. So that could be um, a far more uh, more uh, or a greater a lasting change if somehow Goldman is sanctioned on the civil or criminal side because of the conduct of its client, 1MDB. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, when we go back and we look at, uh, just what happened with the uh, uh, what was it? Was it part of the the sons and daughters, or which bank wrote uh, a letter of recommendation for one of their clients, but they had not done the proper level of due diligence? Is, is that J.P. Morgan Chase, or is that another one I'm mixing up? Uh, I think it's uh, J.P. Morgan, but that it brings up the point that that's exactly what happened here with Tim Leisner. And why the um, Singapore Banking Authority is attempting to suspend his license to do business in uh, Singapore because he wrote a letter on Goldman letterhead vouching for uh, Mr. J. Lowe, who is embroiled in the uh, 1MDB scandal. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it just, uh, you know, it, it, it seems like uh, a similar playbook that we've already seen and that there was definitely... Uh, most of these banks wanted to expand within Asia. They saw this as a growth area, and they came up with ways to uh, curry favor with those, uh, you know, sovereign nation funds and with those investors who had 
money to spend in uh, IPOs and doing listings and things like that. So it'll it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, not only for the cabinet and this administration, uh, but to see if there's, uh, I, I know there are a couple bank settlements listed this uh, morning uh, with regard to uh, the toxic um, mortgages. So I, I still think there's more to see from the banking sector uh, coming into the new year. And clearly we've had requirements for due diligence on sales agents and uh, other representatives on the sales side. We are increasingly seeing due diligence requirements on your supply chain partners. But do you now need to do due diligence on your customers? Uh, that's going to open up a, a very, very broad range of uh, new due diligence requirements. On the other hand, if you want to create a culture of compliance in the business community, it would seem to me that that would be the next logical step. And it's certainly a step for money laundering compliance. So if the U.S. government views money laundering as a component of corruption and terrorism, most particularly, then we could see more uh, due diligence requirements on customers going forward. And this might be, uh, uh, you know, as in the law, Jay, we say bad facts make bad law. Well, the facts of this case uh, might be bad enough that we get uh, a real change in the law out of it. So I think that's all um, our FCPA stuff. Uh, do you want to talk about your Cowboys for a little bit? Yeah, how about them Cowboys clinched the number one seed in the NFC last night, not by playing, but by watching, watching the New York Giants lose to the Philadelphia Eagles. So to Dak and Zach, Jerry, Jason, and the whole Cowboy team, congrats. Uh, let's just hope it's for real this year. Um, we got uh, the best backup money can buy right now, Tony Romo sitting on the bench. and. Uh, Maybe we'll see him play a little bit uh, over the next couple of games since they've uh, clinched the number one seed now. So uh, it's going to be an interesting uh, set of playoffs. I can't recall a first-year quarterback taking a team to a Super Bowl win. I can't recall a first-year quarterback taking a team to a Super Bowl now that I roll through the last 50. But uh, perhaps there are. But um, – been a long time for the Cowboys. I hope Jerry Jones doesn't screw this up, as is his want. And um, But, um, you know, we may have a second team in the playoffs from the great state of Texas this year, Jay. And although they're not my number one favorites, we have uh, the Houston Texans leading their division. Uh, brought in uh, Tom Savage off the bench uh, at uh, a svelte 600000 annual salary, taking over for Mr. $72 million dollars. Brock Osweiler uh, took us to a victory last week over Jacksonville. Um, hopefully we can uh, lead us to a victory uh, this week as well. And if the Texans win out, they will win their division. Uh, it, um, they have a tiebreaker and it may come down to a final season game, winner take all with the Tennessee Titans, which would be even more juicy irony since, of course, the <laughs> Titans – were the former Houston Oilers, although I doubt there are any Oilers left on the Titans, but you have the former Houston team playing the current Houston team uh, for a, a winner-take-all 
uh, event. So uh, lots of fun in uh, Texas professional football, at least uh, this week. You still there, Tom? You're, you're kind of bouncing in and out. Still here. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I, I guess the only thing similar to that with a, with a rookie quarterback uh, leading a team to the Super Bowl, we, we know of a story of your alumnus, Tom Brady, who has a second-year uh, non-starting quarterback did lead the Patriots to their first uh, Super Bowl victory in 2000 and, uh, 2001. So uh, uh, it could be fun to see the uh, the against the uh, the old master, uh, Mr. Brady, and that well, would put you in a very tough rooting position, right? Final thoughts on this uh, December twenty third. Uh, I just want to thank everyone for uh, spending half your year listening to us and our, our ramblings and musings about. Uh, FCPA ethics and compliance in football. Uh, I, I know I enjoy my um, weekly chats with you, so I, I thank you for putting this together and uh, giving us a, a forum to uh, discuss this week in the FCPA. So happy holidays, Tom, to you, Michelle, Paris, and the rest of your family. Same to uh, to Mrs. Translation and the M&M girls. Thanks. All right, everyone, thank you for joining us. Uh, happy holidays, and uh, we will be back with you in the new year to discuss the FCPA week that was. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you again for listening to This Week in FCPA. I have two requests of you. The first is if you've listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate this podcast as it would help our rankings. The second thing is if you'd like any questions answered, please email them to me. Uh, we're collecting questions for our mailbag episode. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to This Week in FCPA. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.